last chapter, chapter 33 of the Last Judgment. And uh, again, there are some extra books on the table back there if anyone would like one and does not yet have one. But this second paragraph deals with uh, uncovering what the Scripture says as to the end or purpose for which God has appointed this day of judgment. Why has God appointed uh, a day of judgment? What does the Scripture teaches of this? It's, it's helpful for us, I think, to pause and consider that we could just immediately go to our eternal reward um, with, without any such day of judgment, um, except this is God's wise and sovereign plan, and he does have a purpose, therefore. And so let's look to the scriptures as we read this paragraph. We'll read through the paragraph and then go back to each of these sets of scripture references the end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice in the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient for then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and refreshing which shall come from the presence of the Lord but the wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast into eternal torments and be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And so our confession says there is one single end which is achieved in, two, in a twofold manner. The end is the manifestation of the glory of God. And that manifestation of his glory is realized or accomplished both in his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice in the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. So in the first case, his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect. It's going to be to the astonishing uh, praise of God that he has been so good and so gracious and so merciful to those that had no claim upon him, that he would set his love upon a people and so accomplish the payment of their sin, the righteousness uh, upon which they may stand before him, and also the transformation of them until every last influence and presence and even consequence of sin is removed so that he shows forth as the work of his hand a new creation that once again perfectly reflects who he is as the initial creation did before Adam and Eve's fall into sin. And so it's going to serve to exalt and manifest the glory of God in seeing his grace and mercy uh, made so evident. It's going, again, there is astonishment at the mercy and the goodness and the grace of God. There are praises sung in heaven even now and for forevermore will be when that day comes and uh, the, the unworthiness is seen of every person who is saved, but also the great work that God has done in bringing about the salvation of his people. It's going to serve to magnify his glory. 
but also it is, it is to the manifestation of his glory when his justice is seen that these who have been uh, wicked and disobedient, there is going to be a perfection in the justice of God in meeting out to them in full measure uh, such that no one can reproach God for the just deserts that he awards on that day of judgment. In fact, it will serve to magnify his justice. You remember King Solomon in the Old Testament and, and how the Lord, he prayed for that wisdom as that greatest gift he could ask for, and the Lord granted that to him. He prayed for wisdom so that he might govern the people of God, this great people that God had put him over. And you remember that incident that is recorded of the, the two women who uh, had this dispute that no one else could figure out how to resolve. Uh, two women, each with a child, one of whose children uh, died in the night and the other woman had stolen the, uh, the neighbor's child. And you remember God blessed Solomon with that wisdom of, of revealing, of uncovering who the true mother was. And he said, well, this would be, this would be fair. We'll, we'll divide both. We'll divide the dead child and the living. And, of course, the, the woman who was just envious and jealous uh, rejoices at this verdict. But then the true mother, uh, she says, no, let her keep the child. I don't want to see my child harm. And then Solomon says, well, you're the mother, and so the child is yours. And the people of Israel hear this, and they are in awe. They marvel at the wisdom of God. They rejoice that God had given such wisdom to men in those who would rule over them to be judge of their disputes. That's just a dim shadow of the justice and the wisdom of God that will be fully on display in this great day of judgment. He will make plain, uh, showing all of, the, all of the sin, all of the motivations, all of the consequences, the destruction that that sin had brought, the misery that it had brought, the, uh, the clear evidence of, of how it was against him and how it was known to be against him. And all of this, and every degree of sin, uh, in terms of the degree of knowledge that was manifested in each sin ever committed, God is going to uncover all of that and deal with it with a perfect justice that we could never approach, but will stand in awe of on that day. We will stand in awe that he has, has with perfection, uh, answered every single thought and word and deed against him with a perfectly measured uh, judgment that exactly answers to the sins involved. We will be in awe of the justice and the wisdom and the righteousness of God as the judge of heaven and earth. And so it is going to manifest uh, his, his glory in both of these ways. So let's go to the first. Um, and actually, there are a couple places where the scriptures takes these up in reverse order. So let's do that and look at the scripture references 
uh, with respect to his justice first, and then we're going to come back to the manifestation of his glory in the eternal salvation of the elect. I think that the confession orders this intentionally. I think that an even greater manifestation of the glory of God is the amazing grace of God because the judgment of God is going to be awesome and, and just and righteous. But the fact that some there who might deserve that judgment are yet spared because of the work of Jesus Christ. It is the pinnacle, the apex of the revelation of his glory. But nonetheless, let's look at these. Um, in Romans chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, um, and we will back up to verse 1. We'll read verses 1 through 6. Uh, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. And so again, when we, when we look at the language of the confession, uh, his justice in the damnation of the reprobate, the, the term reprobate is in contrast to the term elect. Uh, that is, when God looks at the, the fallen lump of mankind, uh, as the scriptures gives the analogy of the potter looking at this clay, he does choose some as the vessels of his mercy uh, that he shows grace to. He chooses, not because of their distinction or worthiness, but by God's, according to his good pleasure alone. He chooses some unto life. The scripture uses that language repeatedly. And these are referred to as the elect. That's another biblical term those who have been chosen. Uh, we use that term uh, most often in terms of our uh, elections, where we are what? We are choosing those who will be in various positions. Well, God has his choice, uh, the elect. And this term, the reprobate, those who have been passed over or destined to be these examples of his justice, um, it is not just an arbitrary decision. Notice there in the language of the confession, his justice and the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. In other words, it's not just that, well, we just missed the lottery there. We missed the, we missed the chance. We missed the draw. No, we are judged because of uh, those who will stand before him and receive his judgment. 
It is because of the wickedness and disobedience of each individual. We see that so clearly there in Romans 2. These verses that we read, not only is there this initial sin that Adam committed uh, that put all of his posterity on a path of rebellion, and we inherit that fallen nature, that proclivity to sin, but we have each committed our own personal acts of sin. Not only that, but notice how Romans 2 goes even a step beyond that to point to the fact that there is a merciful God in heaven who had made plain it with his goodness, with his kindness, with his patience, uh, that this kindness was his overture to fallen man, to come back to him, to repent, to leave off these sins, that there was a way of escape provided through the mercy of God. And so not only that um, corruption in our nature we inherit from Adam, not only the acts of personal sin that we have all shared in and committed, but beyond more than anything, the continued rejection of the mercy and kindness and patience of God so that we would not embrace the gospel and be saved, so that we would not repent because in verse 5, of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. Let's look also at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we'll look at verses 5 through, um, 5 through 10. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Notice again, this, there is a, a righteousness in this judgment that is repeatedly called to the most common description of it it's the righteous judgment of god it is it is in accordance with what those who are judged ultimately have done uh, god says he considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict his children he considers it just and it, this relief and this justice finally being visited upon those who have been enemies is not looked for in an ultimate sense until that great day 
when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And so, again, notice why is it? What, what happens? There's the justice of punishment inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Notice, again, that emphasis, just as in Romans chapter 2, not only looking at the corruption of our natures, of our personal sins against God, we, we would be condemned there, but perhaps more than anything, when God has sent his Son and now calls all men everywhere to repent, every sinner on earth is commanded in the gospel to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus, to turn away from these sins, to come back to the Creator and to repent and be forgiven and to be made willingly a new creation in the, in the person and work of His Son. And the rejection of that is the chief of all offenses against the Lord. It, uh, repeatedly, if you, if you look for it, you'll see that emphasis in these descriptions of the judgment of that great day. Uh, they do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. All right, lastly, let's look at Romans chapter 9, and we will use that to come back to the first set of references in terms of the glory of God being manifest in the mercy he shows in the eternal salvation of the elect. So Romans chapter 9, let's look at... And this, this is the conclusion of a whole passage about God's election, that he hasn't just condemned all mankind in judgment. He could have, justly. We were all sinful. We were all dead in our sins, as we read in Ephesians 2, verses 1 and following. But God has not condemned us all as he would be just to do, but rather in an amazing and unlooked-for demonstration of grace and mercy he has chosen some of these who also deserve judgment to be the recipients of his grace and gave them a new heart that they might respond to that gospel message and be forgiven through uh, repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and so I'd encourage you to look at Romans chapter 9 uh, to read more about that election of grace that God has shown to those who are unworthy. Um, let's look, we will begin here in, um, let's just begin in verse, in verse um, 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. He, he's speaking in terms of the Old Testament covenant promises. It's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time, next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, 
though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So in other words, when we look at mankind and we consider that some are saved, but not all are saved, our, our sinful hearts so often will look upon that and even begin to think, well, that's just not fair. It's not fair that some, some of these are, are going to experience judgment at the hand of God for their sins. And what the scripture and, and God's word uh, speaking here in Romans and other places, uh, what it calls us to consider and remember is that if we're speaking in terms of what is just, then we'd all be condemned because we're all sinful. That the distinction between those who perish and those who are saved is not doesn't hinge upon God being unjust to those who are lost and perish, but it hinges entirely upon the free, uncompelled mercy of God. It doesn't depend, notice there in verse 16, it depends not on human will or exertion. In other words, when we look to that distinction between those who perish and those who are saved, we won't find the, the cause of that in what the people were doing, in their will or their exertion. Well, these people just tried harder. No, that's not why we see some enter into salvation. It has nothing to do with that in terms of what it depends on, but entirely on God who has mercy. Notice verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand? For glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Now, that reference to Hosea is a powerful one, not only for the the quote there, but if you if you look at Hosea, God used him as a prophet to illustrate this point 
very pointedly and powerfully in terms of showing Israel something that she had forgotten and needed to remember, that um, where had she come from? Ezekiel makes the same point. Uh, she had come to a place where she, she felt uh, deserving of all of this, so much so that she was disregarding the very path of covenant faithfulness and clinging to the Redeemer of God's provision and she was presumptuous in her dealings with the Lord of the Covenant. And what does God have Hosea do? He has her, him go and take as his wife a prostitute as an illustration. This is how I've loved you, Israel. You're not, you're not a, a deserving wife. You don't deserve this blessing. You've not done anything to earn it or to achieve it. And you, you depend upon my favor and grace. And of course, this would have implications for then how she would live. If she would remember this, it would manifest in a, a gratitude, a delight in the grace of God and an earnestness to then obey his voice. But um, this, this reference to Hosea, it, it also is a foretaste of that greater glory of the wideness of God's mercy that would come forth in the New Testament. Uh, with the salvation, not of Jews only, as we read in verse 24, but also of the Gentiles. But we can't ever reproach God on that day of judgment, no one will be able to stand up and reproach him for being unjust in his dealings. But where there is a distinction made and where some who might have gone on to destruction yet were arrested and changed and given a new heart, and that's, that's such an important part of the gospel. It's not as though there are two groups that are exactly the same standing on that day. But by God's grace alone, one group, the sheep that are on his right, have been transformed and changed. They've been given a new heart. They've experienced the new birth. They have come to love God. They don't stand there hating him and entering into salvation. No, they're loving him, uh, full of praise to him and thanks to him and humility, acknowledging, Lord, it's only because of what you did that I'm on your right and not with those on your left. It's only because you came and took out a heart of stone and gave me a heart of flesh and you gave me the faith to believe in your son. You're the author and the finisher of my faith and you gave me your spirit. You gave me the will to be your disciple and the strength to walk with you. And all, all that has brought me to this place. And you've changed me, um, making me more and more like you. You remember the, the verse there in Hebrews that we are to pursue peace with all men and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's true. None are going to enter into the joy and the bliss that we're about to read of uh, full of sin. No, we will be sanctified to the place where on that day God will be completing 
the work that he has begun. That's what we read there in Philippians chapter 1, verse 8, that he was confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So it's, it's all together. There's no way to separate the effect of God's saving grace from the, the difference in outcomes there on this great day. And so, as we looked there at Romans 9, we, we see both of these groups in view. We see, um, we see the potter out of this same lump of fallen humanity. It's all worth just throwing away. But God in his wisdom has fashioned uh, things that would serve him. Think about Pharaoh. Pharaoh hated God from his first breath. And he lived a, a whole career of, of sin, of arrogance, of pride. And God, what? He spared him. He even gave him the life uh, each day. He gave him every heartbeat. He gave him his breath. He gave him the provision. He gave him the political favor to arise to that place of prominence. All for what purpose? So that he would be there with all the worldly might of Egypt to oppose God's children as an example where God would show his greater power through his servant Moses in delivering his children from Egypt. And so did God do any wrong to Pharaoh? No, he actually showed kindness to him. That's what we read in Romans 2. It's the kindness and the forbearance of God that is showing his goodness. Pharaoh enjoyed much of the goodness of God his entire life and yet hardened his heart continually until he, he reached a point of open conflict with the God of heaven and was justly destroyed in his path. Let's turn then to um, Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25 and here is the um, parable that Jesus teaches of, of the kingdom, looking especially at the conclusion of this, of our earthly service. Um, notice in, uh, well, in the, in the previous verses, verse 1 through 13, there's the parable of the of the ten well the, the ten virgins they took their lamps five foolish and five wise of course the foolish didn't provide sufficient oil they were unprepared they thought they knew when the bridegroom would arrive and he didn't and they they end up uh, not being there to greet him upon his arrival because they had not prepared and the conclusion there in verse 12, But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And here's this common theme in the scriptures of we should be mindful and thinking about the return of the Lord Jesus to the end that we would remember to be faithful and to be found faithful, found doing his work, and do as well as we can in serving him in the time that we have. We don't know how, how long or short it may be. Those foolish virgins 
thought it would be a short time. And they would have been fine if he had come on. But uh, they, they misjudged. And so rather than um, setting in our minds, well, we know, we know when he's going to come, and living in a way that um, is according to our expectation there, rather we are to take heed to the scriptures. You don't know the day and the hour. That's what Jesus said. So don't structure your life around your idea of when he might come, but rather, knowing that you don't know, simply be faithful. Invest your life to the greatest potential you can in serving this master who is returning. And that's the point of, the, of these verses that we're about to read in verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded them. Notice, does he, does he say, well, we've got plenty of time. We'll just let's set this down and, and take it easy for a little bit. No, he went at once. He went at once and traded with them. And he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done. Good and faithful servant, you have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now let's pause there and, and just see how Jesus acknowledges. He said to each according to his ability at the beginning. And he acknowledges all of us uh, do not have the same gifts and abilities uh, just as these two servants. But they each heard the exact same message. Why? Because they were faithful with what they had been entrusted but notice there in verse 24, he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. What was his failing? Well, he, he completely rejected the instruction of his master. He came up with his own idea of, of what he would do. Uh, he thought to himself, well, I'm not going to get in trouble. I'll just give it back to him when it gets here. He'll have what he had back, and he surely he can be satisfied with that well no you were his servant you were under his authority he gave his gift to you with the instruction to 
work with it, and you rebelled against him. Uh, you, you thought him a hard master and unworthy of your service. And uh, it doesn't end well for that, for that servant. But notice the verse we were directed to in the confession, verse 21. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Uh, what sweet words that will be when we stand before the Lord and we marvel at his grace in our lives. And we will have served him according to his grace working in us. We have nothing that we have not received, as Paul reminded the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 7. And uh, we will be giving back to the Lord what belongs to him. And by his grace, he receives that back from us and says, well done, good and faithful servant. If we have sought to be faithful in what he has given us, uh, we should be presenting to him uh, something to the increase of his glory, using well what he has bestowed upon us. Well, we'll close with a word of prayer. We have reached our time limit for this morning, and we will look uh, at these other passages uh, that further expound upon uh, the blessedness of the final estate of the righteous and the terrible judgment that comes upon the wicked uh, because of their rejection of him as their master. Well, let's, uh, let's close with prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace that is greater than our sin. We thank you for the gospel, that it is a command that goes into the earth, calling all men everywhere to repent. We pray that we would be faithful in forwarding that message and calling attention to it and spreading it and pointing people to the promise of life and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they need not perish. Why will the wicked perish uh, when he can turn to the Lord and be saved? Oh Lord, we pray for your spirit to come and do that work in each heart that they might be delivered from a heart of stone against you, a dead heart and a hard heart, and be given a heart of flesh. Lord, you alone can do this. We pray that you would do it. And you have promised uh, to perform it according to your word. We know that you used your word, even in the example of Ezekiel, in how you gave him that vision of calling those bones to life. It was through your word pro proclaimed to them that you accomplished that. And what a powerful uh, lesson that is. We pray that you would help us to proclaim and live and speak your word and that you would bless that in the lives of those around us that they might um, see and witness and hear your word proclaimed and that you would use that by your powerful hand to accomplish bringing them from dead to life. I pray this now, ask that you would be with us and bless our time of worship together. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.